Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. That's superstition, faith, witchcraft, the plague, child slavery and abortions are all part of the rich mix in Chris Wommers... How do you pronounce your surname, Oh, Chris? Wommersley's fine. Wommersley. I'm not that fussed. Wommersley. Chris Wommersley's latest novel, City of Crows. So, Chris, welcome back to 3CR. Thanks very much for having me. Now, what is this city that we are talking about? Uh, city of Crows would be Paris of 1673. 1673. Um, I'm going to give a, a little bit of a description here. You're fortunate I am your guide, he called out to Madame Picot as he scurried after her. Paris is a most dangerous city. Oh, yes, filthy, my God, full of rats and other vermin. Bodies lying dead in the streets, horrible carrion birds everywhere living off the refuse. You know, I've heard some people refer to it as the city of crows. And a man I know told me that many of these crows are inhabited by the souls of dead witches. Yes. Totally true story. Tot. <laughs> what was the fascination with Paris? Well, what's not to love, basically? Witchcraft, sorcery, illegal abortion, medieval cesspit of a city. And we're in 1673. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess my became interested in it when I was uh, sort of, I don't know, I just became weirdly interested in 17th century European history. And in fact, sort of thought I would write a book set during the Thirty Years' War, which was 1618 to 1648. Because I like the kind of apocalyptic uh, mercenaries roaming across Europe sort of vibe, um, the kind of Hieronymus Bosch kind of vibe, and then sort of discovered this thing called the uh, Affair of the Poisons, which happened in late 1670s, which is um, when the Parisian police, police, newly formed police force, uh, discovered what they thought was a plot to poison Louis XIV. And in their investigations, they uncovered a kind of a a massive network of people working in Paris who were working as fortune tellers and sorcerers and astrologists and abortionists, poisoners. But it's a time of great uncertainty, of course, with the plague. Indeed, yeah, the plague was kind of recurring. Uh, 1666 had been the big fire in London, so there was a sort of real sort of apocalyptic millennial vibe uh, around the place. Uh, The War of Religions had kind of ended. So still sort of the Protestant Catholic thing was going on. It was a great period of uncertainty, the rise of the nation state um, as opposed to the city state in Europe. So it was sort of the formation of what we, you know, it's known as the early modern era, but Paris was still kind of essentially architecturally a, a medieval city. And nobody had control of their future. You could drop dead the following day from the plague. We still could. You still could. And you get run over by traffic today. But <laughs> into this mix, we have the three central characters, really. They yep. uh, inhabit this world. And we might introduce the three of them with a little of their background story. We have Charlotte Picot. Uh, Charlotte's chin was crumbled with dirt. Her cheeks and neck were pitted here and there with half a dozen scars from her childhood pox, as if she had long ago been splashed with hot oil. And um, she's leaving her hometown with her son, Nicholas, but she comes... Well, her husband's died of the plague. She's looking for a better future, but... She succumbs to misfortune. 
She does indeed. She's uh, injured along the way very early on her trip. She leaves her village of Saint-Gilles uh, and intending to head to Lyon, where she hopes she might be safer from the plague. Um, and she's uh, attacked by a group of kind of slavers, essentially, who take her son from her. Um, and in she sort of... The the novel, I guess, her no- narrative is a quest to to save Nicholas, so that, who she believes has been taken to Paris, and that is the compelling uh, drive for yeah. her. But uh, what purpose do they put these children to? Uh, well, pa- you know, Paris um, in those days was a kind of you know certainly there was a a trade in children. People would sell their children uh, if they couldn't look after them to people who would then take them to Paris and use them as um, domestic help. Uh, laborers, maids, servants, all this kind of stuff. Um, so there's, for anyone who's been to Paris in recent years, there's a kind of hip market called Les Enfants Rouges, which uh, used to be the site of a famous orphanage uh, in which the children wore red. But you make it sound as if it's, um, you know, not that, Serious in terms of their their servants, there is a seedier side. Oh yeah, there's kind of a seedier side certainly, and there's a suspicion that um, um, Nicholas may be used for um, human sacrifice and maybe basically kind of used as a sort of a a device uh, in black magic. Black magic. There's also sexual innuendo, and there's a you know, it's it's really nasty sort of thing. (laughs) But um, of course, uh, Charlotte Bigot is assisted by Madame Roland. She has actually been shot when her son was stolen from her. But um, Madame Roland is um, a witch. Yeah, so Charlotte sort of wakes up in the uh, house or cave of a, of a woman who sort of, you know, claims to be a witch and has, has magical powers and passes along a, a particular book or a grimoire to Charlotte uh, in order to help her. So, you know, I guess the... The elevator pitch of um, City of Crows is a woman uh, is forced to turn to witchcraft in order to save her son. It's her sort of only remaining kind of method of control. And Madame Roland passes on mm. her powers, so Indeed. to speak. Indeed, yeah, she passes on her kind through of... Through this book. Exactly. All that begging, all that asking for nothing. Well, I think perhaps it is time for the spirits to do our bidding, Madame. Indeed. So we have now Charlotte heading towards Paris um, with... Uh, the powers of witchcraft, so to speak. But uh, we also have Lesage. Yeah, Lesage is a really sort of interesting character. He's sort of based on a real um, person. Uh, most of the characters in the book, except for Charlotte, actually, are based on historical figures. And Lesage was a guy who um, worked as a... Ma- he was a wool trader by trade, but he worked in Paris uh, as a magician, effectively, um, engaging in black magic and impieties. He did about five years in the galleys. And uh, he's accident or incidentally, so to speak, a released from the galleys. Yeah, no one's actually quite sure why. Historians aren't quite sure why, because generally, if you were sentenced to the galleys, even if it was for a limited term, it was basically um, sayonara. You would die on board, or be tortured to death, or just be forgotten about and, and spend the rest of your life in the galleys. So he was kind of released um, in 1673. And headed straight back to Paris where he became involved in um, exactly the same thing that he'd been doing for sort of half a dozen years or so. But he has a map. But Lesage has a map of um, what, you know, a big thing in the 17th century, highly connected to sort of witchcraft and superstition, was um, people treasure hunting. Like uh, there was this sort of great 
thread of um, black magic, which was about um, being able to banish the demons that guarded uh, treasure that had been buried during the various wars of the 17th century and stuff. So, yeah, so Lesage has a map of treasure that's in the Rue Saint-Antoine. But he needs a witch. He needs someone who can dispel the demons. So um, happily he meets Charlotte, or unhappily, on the road. We'll, we'll get to that because there's another character in all of this, Catherine Lamoisson. Yeah, or Montfoisson, yeah. And um, with whom Lesage was previously acquainted. Yeah, and she's a real, she was sort of the most famous um, abortionist and sorceress in Paris at the time and uh, ended up coming to quite a sticky end uh, many years after the period in which my novel was set. Uh, and she was renowned as being kind of a pretty unpleasant kind of character. Um, when she was arrested, there were sort of tabloid claims that she had the uh, fetuses of two th- you know 2,000 babies buried in her backyard and all this kind of stuff, which was ne- never dug up, but it was always... But they're know, servicing the needs of a people that yeah. are looking for answers in this time of uncertainty. Well, we're all looking for answers in a time of uncertainty and whether you choose sort of uh, the correct method, i.e. religion and praying and, or, and stuff, um, or kind of a more subversive method of witchcraft is kind of what interested me. Now, what brings these characters together is a curious mix of coincidence and superstition. Lesage is looking for his treasure and he needs a witch. Charlotte is looking for her son and she needs someone to... Yeah, she need, well, Charlotte is a very kind of... She's not a foolish person by any means, but she's... Um, She's a peasant woman. She's very unworldly. She's very unsophisticated. She doesn't has never left her village, um, and she meets Lesage, who's this incredibly kind of streetwise kind of character who um, may or may not be taking advantage of her. But they fall uh, prey to their own superstition. I mean, the meeting on the road. He was preoccupied with such thoughts when, after walking several leagues further, he glanced up and saw in the distance a startling apparition. There, in the middle of the road, probably a hundred feet away stood a solitary figure. He stopped to squint. It was a woman, by the look of it, standing all by herself, and although her features were smudged by distance and dim light, he sensed her staring at him. And so he believed... He's looking for the uh, witch of the forest, the queen of the forest. Yeah. Um, So it it just so happens that, that he comes across Charlotte at that same time. And even though these characters, like Lesage, are charlatans, they fall... But are they? But are Charlatans. they? Um, they fall prey to their own uh, yeah, insecurity or suspicion. Well, or I doubt. think it's about um, it's sort of what we might call confirmation bias to a certain extent. Like you sort of see what you believe to be true in the world, don't you? You know, we all sort of are guilty or innocent of that particular thing, and it's just that their particular worldview is perhaps by our modern standards kind of extreme. But on the one hand, they are setting up ruses to make money and to yep. dupe people. They even meet some troubadours along the yeah. way who test out their abilities to read cards and such mm. like and tell fortunes as if, yeah, we know the trick you're playing, so are you any good? But then those troubadours seek uh, a, a reading. Yeah. I mean, I think features. I think Lesage is really interesting and um, he, when he was sort of subsequently arrested, his sort of trial records, his de- big defence was... Well, I wasn't engaged in sacrilege because I don't really believe that stuff, you know, although he was, you know, eventually sent away for sort of engaging in black masses and so forth. But so he was his sort of defense, as it were, was um, I wasn't really engaged in in impieties. I was just tricking these people. So if I'm, I'm guilty of anything, it's fraud. 
But there is on the historical record an instance where he and his lover, Catherine, um, put a curse on a sheep's heart and buried it in the back backyard in order to knock off um, Catherine's husband. But Lesage got cold feet after two days and made her kind of dig it up because... He didn't want to kill anyone. But the husband in, in the book. And he survives. Yeah, Antoine survived. Did he did fall ill, though. Uh, he did fall, yeah, that's right. He sort of fell ill. But, but this um, is coincidence die. and superstition. Yeah. So, again, it's that thing of, like, believing what you see in the world, I guess, to be true. But Lesage thinks Charlotte has a hold on him. Uh, yeah. etc. cetera. Uh, Charlotte thinks she needs Lesage to find Nicholas. Lesage thinks he needs Charlotte to find the treasure. Lesage and Catherine plot to dispose of Charlotte. It's all getting... Yeah, a real mix. But then there's the resolution. And it seems um, that, uh, well, there's an outcome to the search for Nicholas and the search for treasure. And I don't want to give it away, so let the reader find out. But then there's a sort of coda at the end um, where Charlotte is a sort of reluctant witch, but she decides to try out fully the powers of witchcraft that has been bestowed on her. Yes. It's a a murky sort of... (laughs) Well, I guess, you know, I've always sort of been interested in all my books to an extent are about people who are corrupted. Maybe all books are about that. Um, You know, it's sort of either people who are innocent who are sort of forced to act against their moral code. And I guess um, with City of Crows, Charlotte's a sort of... You know, she's an ordinary peasant woman, essentially God-fearing, and she's sort of forced by circumstance to engage in things that transgress her own kind of moral ideals. And so she goes down that path. Yeah. And really the end of the novel, and again Mm. we're not giving it away, is in some ways similar to a scene when she was wounded, when her son was stolen, uh, where she is hallucinating about meeting... The devil. Yeah, she like there's a lot in the book. It's about, and this is sort of pretty common throughout a bit of fair bit of my work actually. This sort of ambiguity, and maybe it's my commitment phobia <laughs> um, of whether what's real and what's imagined, and what we kind of imagine to be true, and what the reader might or might not read between the lines, as it were. I guess dramatic irony we're sort of talking about. Um, so, so clearly the book's written for a 21st century reader, but they're people who um, believe in things uh, that a 17th century European would. Well, the only thing the listener can believe in is that this interview was real. <laughs> <laughs> or at least I think it was. Um, the author, Chris Wormersley, the book is City of Crows and it's a Pan Macmillan release, Jan. Well, if you're listening out there and you're, and j- crime is your genre of choice, then my author, Emma Viskic, is certainly one to add to your reading list. Welcome, Emma. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Now, of course, we know every crime novel needs the baddies, the victims, the suspicious bystanders and an investigator who solves the crime. You have given us Caleb Zalik. He differs to your regular investigator. How? In You know, it's funny. In some ways, I think he is an absolute straight-down-the-line typical noir investigator in that he is a straight white man who's got troubled relationships, but he's also profoundly deaf. 
and and that is to me what makes him interesting. It's that um, that balance between him being absolutely invincible in this world mm. and also extremely vulnerable as well. Well, those that know him use Auslan sign language, and he's the proficient lip reader. But lip reading and his occupation have difficulties. What are they? Yes, well, um, I actually studied a bit of lip reading when I started writing his character. I, I, first of all, I did an, on, an online course and I thought, oh, yeah, I've got the hang of this. This is going to be fine. So I, I put earbuds in my ears, little, you know, foam earbuds, and I, and I started going out and going into cafes and trying to catch trains and missing public service announcements and discovered within about two minutes that lip reading is, is incredibly <laughs> difficult. And, and most of it's actually guesswork. Um, it's about context. Uh, even learning Auslan, one of the first signs you learn is context. It's all about context. Oh. Um, but there are people who are really skilled at it, and I, I know some of them. In fact, um, ever since I started writing Caleb's character, people have been coming up to me and saying, oh, did you know I'm deaf? Or did you know my mother is deaf? And I, I've had no idea. Yeah. And, and deafness can mean anything from hard of hearing to profoundly deaf. Um, but but sometimes people are really quite deaf and I've had no idea until they tell me and then I start thinking back and picking up those little clues of that intense concentration of always looking at you and really mm. taking in your words. So uh, it can have a positive uh, outcome for Caleb as well in that although he misses a lot, he also gains a lot. Well, we first met Caleb in your previous book, Resurrection, Resurrection Bay. Now, how many prizes did you win for that one? <laughs> uh, it was one of those funny things where everything happened on the, the same weekend. So I won the Ned Kelly Best Debut yep. and on the same weekend won three of the David Awards for... Yeah. <laughs> David Novel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah oh, debut Reader's and Chester. adult. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well done. Well, within the first uh, four pages of this new one, And Fire Came Down, we know Caleb is frustrated. And when he's frustrated, he goes running. And he doesn't wear his hearing aids. And it's night time. So... We've got him in a dark alley in an inner city Melbourne suburb, an abduction, a fight and a death. This scared woman knew Caleb was deaf because she used a little Auslan, but her final words were lost to him. Where was this woman from? Well, that's mm. the whole book, really. <laughs> mm. um, yeah, so poor old Caleb is is very much struggling after the events of Resurrection Bay. He's struggling emotionally. He's, he's struggling with his relationships. He's struggling with his business. Mm. Uh, and then, yes, this woman basically dies in his arms because he hasn't been able to help her. He does have a clue, though, because it is a crime novel. Oh, yes, yes. And yes. the clue is his name and address have been written on the back of a... Uh, well, a my key receipt, a train ticket, mm. uh, back to his hometown of Resurrection Bay. So he then sets out to find out who she was and why she came to him, partly because he feels some connection and guilt with her, but I think mainly to distract himself from his, his own problems. Well, Caleb grew up in Resurrection Bay. Do you think he had a happy time there? <laughs> <laughs> that might be better <laughs> going back to you. <laughs> um, 
I think like most childhoods, uh, oh. Caleb's had a bit of a mixed well, life. Well, of course, because he was deaf, he went to the specialist school. And, yeah. you know, even now, all the locals, he still meets them, he knows them, they, they know of him, if not him. And the local cop who said, oh, you're Ant's brother. You can't be because he was retarded. And you think, oh. So, of course, Caleb's brother, Ant, is still in Resurrection Bay. Yes. So He's had a few problems. Yeah, poor old aunt. So, yes, the brothers, they've had a bit of a rocky upbringing. Um, and aunt is one of these people who won't leave his hometown, partly for good reasons and partly because he's scared. Mm. He's, um, he's not good at um, really putting himself out there, at, at, at entering the world in a positive way. But at the beginning of Van Fyren came down, he's he has turned a corner mm. and he's getting his life together. He's got a job. He's got a girlfriend. And then, of course, his brother comes back into his life. And uh, <laughs> Well, yeah. I, I really enjoyed the angst between these two brothers. They've got the history and their knowledge together and they both have relationship and communication problems with women, don't they? <laughs> yes, yes. But there's this dry humour and understanding the passes between them, which, which thank you very much, Emma Visick. I thought it was really very clever dialogue, you know, just short, snappy stuff like Caleb, the older brother, you don't drink, Ant. Thanks, Mum, I do, says him. <laughs> and this is, uh, and of course, we have to mention Cat. Yes, lovely Cat. Um, <laughs> poor old Caleb is desperately in love with his estranged wife, or sometimes estranged wife mm. and very much wanting to reconnect and um cat is also a local of resurrection bay um and her and she is Kuri and her family are from the area so there's a, another layer to her connections with the area and that they've been in the area for 60,000 mm -hmm. years um so i i wanted to have the book set in that in the town for for a number of reasons and one of the reasons was that anchoring of the the Koori community to the area um i wanted to show that well while caleb's relationship with the town is somewhat frayed mm -hmm. really he's drawn back to it but he's always trying to get away cat will always go back because that's her home that's where her family is even though she may live in different countries or towns she knows that when she goes back there she's at home mm -hmm. in in the area through your writing through her eyes. I, I, I thought it was really good. There's a scar tree. This is a tree that uh, has the bark removed to make into a canoe at some stage. But there's, it's, it's a symbolic tree because of the scar and Cat uh, says about the bark has to be strongest around the scar. And She's wearing scars from the last book. And, and this is a read-alone book, but it, it, you do get a little bit more depth there. Um, he's all got, got his, Caleb's got his own scars. But this, this scar tree is also used for a horrific device in the book, which really tells you about the problem that's happening in the mish. The mish. Yeah, so one of the, I, I often start a novel only with a few scenes or um, even a place in my mind. And with And Fire Came Down, I, I very much started with one scene 
and an image of a scar tree. Mm. So I first came across scar trees oh, a, a long time ago, maybe 20 years ago or so ago. Um, my father-in-law, who's uh, a Koori elder, showed me photos. He's been taking photos of them for a long, long time. And he explained to me what they were. And they really resonated with me. That, as you say, it's that metaphor for healing or not healing mm. and where your scars will always be there, but you will heal if if you allow yourself to. So I very much wanted it there to be a, as a positive metaphor, but also, as you say, it's used for ill in the book mm. as well because mm. the book it does go quite heavily into black-white relations. And you took us to a funeral and I had never known about this hymn, um, The Old Ragged, Rugged Cross, that was part and parcel of that. So I'll look forward to sort of finding out a little bit more about that. Yeah, and it's it's the old rugged cross um has been played at every community funeral I've been at and mm. it is it's once it starts playing you just go oh okay. Yeah, yeah. and it's that's that um it's that Proust thing, you know, it's, it's instead of a taste it's it's a sound that you you just go oh it, it goes with funerals. Well, as you sort of said at the beginning, Caleb is certainly not Superman. He can't do all of this by himself. But he used to have a partner in Trustworks. What happened to Frankie? Well, I can't say too much about Frankie for fear of spoilers, but let's just say that they start off in the novel not on the best of terms. The business partner who had been a lying, drug-addicted criminal. Well, that's (laughs) enough about her. So in in contrast to Frankie, we have the 16-year-old computer whiz, Sammy, who had a skimmer exactly the right size to slip into an ATM and skim the data from bank cards. And and Caleb says, what are you doing with something like that? And she answers, well, right now I'm getting some dodgy info from a card you don't own. (laughs) <laughs> really put, a ba- put him back in his place. And there is Uri Tedesco, the large man with granite-like features and c- close-cropped hair. He's a friend, lifesaver, cop. But, you know, we wonder what type of cop and can all cops be trusted? And what do they know about the motorbike gangs, the copperheads? And here we've got a little bit of the book. Yes, yeah, so this is Uri Tedesco talking to Caleb. Mate, you need to drop this now. The Copperheads aren't a bunch of country hicks. They run most of the drugs and sex trade from Geelong to Adelaide. If you keep wandering around your hometown asking questions about them, they're going to hear about it. And when they do, they're going to stomp on you. Do you know what they did to the last guy who got in their way? They tortured him to death with a blowtorch. And he was a cop. Tedesco leaned forward, his grey eyes fixed on Caleb's. If they did that to a cop... Imagine what they do to you. So it was a very fast-moving story, a lot of action. A lot of things I really enjoyed reading about it, but I I thought some of your description and the problems that you put your character in because he was deaf, like trying to lip-read, and this person was speaking not a hard little nugget or word squeezed through cat bum lips. <laughs> or at the problem he had if people wore beards. Or then there was Bethany. Bethany was going to be hard to read. She had skin of Botoxed smoothness and lips so artificially plump that they bounced whenever she pursed her mouth, <laughs> which was often. And then the, the beauty of tactile signing. Oh, when it was dark... This is Cat, stretched the shapes, carrying his hands with her. He felt its intimacy. He closed his eyes and fell into her movements. Well, 
I am intrigued and hoping you're well on the way for the next book. Um, we need to find out what Frankie's key unlocked and what that old dude does that makes the best coffee in town. <laughs> so, well, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Emma Viskic, for her, your second book about uh, uh, Caleb Zolik, The Fire Came Down by Bonia. I have been, or I was talking to Chris Womersley about City of Crows, Pan McMillan, and... Um, that basically takes us out for another week, Jan. Thank you very much, David.